This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery. Welcome to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. In this episode of Inside COVID-19, we have two special interviews for you with medical experts of global standing. First up, we speak to Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, a professor of medicine at Stanford University. Dr. Bhattacharya is one of the driving forces behind the Great Barrington Declaration, which calls for a rethink on lockdowns and an intelligent approach to protecting the vulnerable. He's taken a lot of flack from government advisers and others, but he is pursuing his commitment to focused protection because, he tells us, his conscience won't allow him to do otherwise. Dr. Bhattacharya's message resonates with South Africa's business leaders, with Business for South Africa this week urging President Cyril Ramaphosa to resist the temptation to tighten up lockdown restrictions to save South Africa from further economic destruction. Also coming up in this episode of Inside COVID-19, Biz News spoke to Professor Shabir Mahdi, a highly respected vaccinology expert at the University of the Witwatersrand, on the latest developments in the race to vaccinate South Africa against COVID-19. Also in this episode, we speak to Dr. Nalutandu Nematswerani, Discovery Health's Head of Clinical Policy, about her views on the latest developments in vaccines. First, the COVID-19 news making headlines. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Versace, Gucci and Prada have all joined the anti-fur movement in recent years, but the latest body blow to the industry was just delivered courtesy of COVID-19 via a mutation of the virus found in mink. Bloomberg reports that the animals have emerged as highly efficient spreaders of the coronavirus, potentially complicating efforts to control a pandemic that has already claimed more than one million human lives. Last week, Denmark revealed it had found a variant of the virus that officials fear could be so disruptive that it justified ordering the extermination of the country's entire mink population of 17 million animals. The British pound, or sterling, has been one of the main beneficiaries of the growing optimism for a COVID-19 vaccine. Bloomberg says it would boost a services-driven economy stifled by lockdowns and diminish the likelihood of negative interest rates. The pound and government bond yields have been rising in tandem, with some banks seeing sterling reaching a two-year high, of $1.40 to the British pound if there is a Brexit deal. Oil rose above the $45 a barrel in London for the first time in 10 weeks as financial markets continued to advance on a vaccine breakthrough and U.S. crude stocks appeared to retreat. Hungary has tightened its mask mandate. Bloomberg reports that Hungary is making masks mandatory in many public spaces in bigger cities as part of fresh restrictions designed to curb a spike in virus deaths. Germany's virus numbers are currently too high to allow a loosening of restrictions, with the government warning that Christmas markets and religious services will not be possible with the current rates of infection. Shares in industrial freezing firms rose on vaccine speculation this week. Bloomberg reports that speculators are buying shares in firms that specialize in industrial freezing as Pfizer's vaccine needs to be stored at around minus 70 degrees Celsius. The U.S. had a record 61,964 patients hospitalized with COVID-19 on Tuesday, which surpassed its April high of just under 60,000. 
The UK government is set to hand more than £40 billion to companies that can help its drive to ramp up mass coronavirus testing. This is a plan that has been dubbed Operation Moonshot, with government bodies issuing tenders for test makers and diagnostic equipment. The deep freeze hurdle makes Pfizer's vaccine one for the rich. That's the caution from Bloomberg, which says that the euphoria is now being diluted by the realization that no currently used vaccine has ever been made from the messenger RNA technology deployed in Pfizer's shot. This means that countries will need to build from scratch the deep freeze production, storage and transportation networks needed for the vaccine to survive. The massive investment and coordination required all but ensures that only rich populations are guaranteed access, says Bloomberg, and even then perhaps only their urban populations. The news about Pfizer and BioNTech's COVID-19 vaccine has spurred a speculative frenzy in a relatively niche corner of Asia's stock market. In South Korea, freezer and cooling circulator maker Daihan and deep freezer supplier Ilshin Biobase rallied further after surging as much as 30% on Tuesday. In Japan, kitchen refrigerator maker Hoshizaki has added almost 10% over the past two sessions. Over in India, Snowman Logistics was also a winner on the stock market. Masayuki Otani, chief market strategist at Securities Japan, says that investors are speculatively buying these names on the logistical difficulties of delivering the vaccines. As of midweek, just under 20,000 people had died of COVID-19 in South Africa with the recoveries standing at a rate of 92% according to the government. Next, we speak to one of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration. Inside COVID-19, from BizNews. I'm Jackie Cameron for BizNews. With me now is Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, a professor of medicine at Stanford University. Dr. Bhattacharya is one of the driving forces behind the Great Barrington Declaration, which calls for a rethink on lockdowns to curb the spread of COVID-19 and instead encourages an approach called focused protection. Welcome, Dr. Bhattacharya. Thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. And you can call me Jay. Thank you. So you're probably aware that South Africa has had very tough lockdown measures which have hammered the economy and our COVID-19 cases are ticking up again and our government is talking about possibly uh, making the regulations tighter again. And this has caused a lot of consternation in some circles because, you know, we have high unemployment and high poverty. So the Great Barrington Declaration is of huge interest to many people in South Africa, including very powerful business figures who have been very supportive of your declaration. But let's take a step back. Perhaps we could start by looking at what is this declaration? What is it proposing? And why did you decide to get involved? Sure. Uh, so the the basic premise uh, is it's it's it's, a, it's based on a couple of scientific facts. So first, the first scientific fact is that there's a very very sharp age gradient in the lethality of COVID nineteen among people who are over seventy. The, the lethality the, the the infection survival rate is about ninety five percent, so five percent mortality rate. By contrast, for people who are under seventy. It's much lower. It's, it's uh, the, the the lethality is much lower. The infection survival rate is actually ninety nine point nine five percent, ninety nine point nine five percent. So zero point five percent mortality rate. So that's fact number one. Uh, fact number two, and this this is this is less well known, but is really important, is that the lockdowns themselves are deadly for basically everyone involved. Uh, in in countries around the world, what we've seen is that the lockdowns have led to people not getting care for cancer, 
prevent, they're not getting preventive, uh, you know, sort of screening, screening tests like colonoscopy and breast, breast cancer screening. It's led to shutdowns of vaccine programs. It's, it's led, it, the, the economic harm from lockdowns has affected basically every poor country on earth. In fact, rich countries as well, obviously. Um, but, uh, but in poor countries, especially it's led to, uh, you know, the UNS has estimated something on the order of 130 million people who are on the brink of starvation as a consequence of the, the, the economic harm. If you're living on only a few dollars a day, even a small economic hit can have a big effect. And this is a big economic effect. So the, the lockdowns, in addition, have had enormous psychological damage. Uh, in the United States, for instance, one in four young adults seriously considered suicide. So in the month of June, so it's, it's the lockdowns are not, if you think about it as just economics, it's not, that's not right. The lockdowns have had devastating mental and physical effects on populations everywhere. So, so, and the, you know, if you think about what the lockdowns do, they they also, in some ways, help spread the disease. Uh, The economic dislocation caused by the lockdown have led to many, many, many uh, young adults going to, going to live with, uh, with their older parents. And, uh, the the idea that that controlling community spread can automatically protects the older population is is transparently not true because uh, around the world it's the older population that's that's been hit by the by the by COVID as I said it's a very deadly disease for people who are older so what's the solution the the the, the idea is let's use our resources to protect the vulnerable protect the people who are older who are vulnerable to disease people who have chronic conditions that make them more vulnerable and. For the rest of the population, for whom the lockdowns are more harmful than, than the disease, letting people go about their lives is the right thing to do. Essentially, the, the, the lockdowns have created a situation where we've asked poor people who are, uh, who are, who are not you know, in the essential worker class to go out and be exposed to the disease regardless of whether they're, you know, they're, they're vulnerable or not. Uh, while at the same time, richer people can stay at home and, and, uh, and, and not be exposed it's it's created this sort of a huge inequality. We closed our schools. Actually, I'm not sure in South Africa exactly but the, the situation regarding schools, but in the United States, schools are closed everywhere uh, to obtain person instruction. We've closed our businesses. We've closed our, our uh, uh, opportunities for, for play. We've closed our sports. We've closed our churches. All of these have devastating psychological and physical effects that, were, that are sort of underappreciated when you just talk about it as economics. So that's that's the basic argument. Let's use our resources to protect the vulnerable, and use the and, and let everyone else go about their lives uh, as as best they can, taking precautions when necessary. Do you have any statistics to demonstrate that the lockdowns are more deadly than not having them? You mentioned, you know, the other diseases and the, the fatality rates. Do you have any comparisons? Yeah, let me give you a couple of statistics. I mean, it's 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 there's there's so widespread the effects. It's hard to give you a single number, but I can give you a couple of numbers just to give you some sense of the, the scale of the problem, right? So j- just take that number uh, of 130 million people that the UN says additional people were on the brink of starvation as a result of the lockdowns. Think of how many COVID deaths there have been to date. That's something on the order of a million. Even if one in a hundred of those of those are are, co- are lockdown related deaths, then there have been more deaths from starvation as a consequence of the lockdowns than from COVID. Another another statistic I can I can give you relates to tuberculosis control, right? So uh, the, again, this is a I think a UN number suggested there'd be four hundred thousand additional deaths this year because of as a consequence at least in part of the lockdowns and the economic dislocation caused by them. And you also mentioned something very interesting from a South African perspective. We have a very high TB rate. You said that we're, we're expecting higher TB 
cases. So for, right. So let me let me let me tell you about that statistic. So there's uh, in, a, in a report that uh, just recently issued, I think that the, 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 the finding is that there will be this year 400,000 additional tuberculosis deaths as a consequence of the diversion of medical resources from from tuberculosis control to lockdown to uh, to, to COVID. Um, I mean, these are just two diseases. If you think about the panoply of, of, of diseases and conditions that public health normally deals with, nearly every single one has been harmed by diversion of resources because of the lockdowns. And the economic harm itself contributes to that. So we talk about hospital systems being overwhelmed. Well, hospital systems in part become overwhelmed when they're financially stressed. And the lockdowns in many, many places have, have led to financial stress on hospitals because they, they've stayed empty waiting for COVID cases that have not come. Only a few places have you seen, you know, overwhelming of hospital systems. The lockdown is this blunt approach to managing COVID, which absolutely needs to be managed, but it needs to be managed intelligently with an eye toward all of public health, not simply just COVID. Public health is not just about infection control. It's about a much broader set of outcomes. And to a large degree, we've lost that that way of thinking, which is unfortunate. What does that intelligent approach look like? So I've I've mentioned focus protection uh, a couple of times. Let me describe in some detail about what that might look, what that might mean. So we know that the older population, especially the older population living in care homes, are particularly vulnerable. Uh, I think something on the order of 70 or 80 percent of all deaths worldwide are on the older population. And uh, in care homes in particular, somewhere in the order of, depending on the location, somewhere between half to two thirds of all deaths are, are in care homes. We absolutely need to protect our older uh, you know, mothers and fathers and, and uncles living in care homes from exposure to COVID. And that, what does that involve? That means uh, using our testing resources to check that uh, staff are not infected. When people visit, we should make sure that they 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 don't have COVID, and we we take very very stringent precautions to make sure that the uh, that the, that uh, you don't no one comes in with COVID uh, and exposes anyone older. If there if someone does get sick, we should provide a a, a a a location where they can they they can be cared for compassionately, but but doesn't but not intermingle with the rest of the population in the in the care homes. We we should make sure that air circulation and other other mechanisms to sort of uh, secure our air, uh, care homes from some disease spread are, are, are in place. And we should, and in New York, one thing that happened was, was absolutely devastating in the early days where they, where people, uh, older people in hospitals with COVID were sent back to care homes, uh, uh, even when they were still infectious, that should never, never, never happen. So we should, we should do everything we can manage to, to protect our care homes for old, for older workers in the population at large. Well, we, we often deem them essential especially if they're poor, and that we ask the, the 63-year-old bus driver to go out and get, be exposed, uh, or the, 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 the 64-year-old teacher with diabetes to, 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 go, to go, out, go out and teach in person. Instead, what we should do is we should provide for this vulnerable population um, accommodations, just like we do with other disabilities, so that they don't have to be exposed and, can, and yet can still maintain their job and do meaningful work that doesn't require them to be exposed. Uh, so for the teacher, for instance, maybe they can help younger teachers with with curricula or grading. The bus driver maybe can do administrative work, whether they don't have to go out in the public, and, and let younger bus drivers go out, let younger teachers teach in person. 
for people living in multi-generational homes, I mean, this is a particular challenge. And it's a challenge caused by lockdowns, mind you, because a lot of the multi-generational homes are, are because younger people have been forced to go live with their older older parents or, or even grandparents sometimes. So in that case, what needs to happen is that people need to be provided a, a, an op, a, maybe a, a temporary place to live if you know someone in their house has been exposed to COVID, uh, maybe the older older person can go live go live with their brother or sister somewhere, where while the the the, the case is being 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 um, you know whether, whether you know looking you can look into so, so you you could provide testing resources like rapid antigen tests to, to households like this. So, you know, if, a, if you have a younger teenager that goes out and, and does normal teenager things and they come home, they might have COVID, you test them and say, okay, if they're not, if they're negative, you don't have to worry. If they're, if they might, if there's, if it's positive, then you go to a, a temporary house until, until the case is cleared. We have to work very, uh, in, that, in that setting, it's, it's difficult. It won't be perfect, but it has to be, it's, it's much better than the alternative, which is essentially to ask our younger people to face the enormous psychological and physical distress caused by the lockdowns to them. And what is this declaration? How powerful is it? I wrote it with two other professors, uh, one, uh, Dr. Martin Kuhldorf at Harvard University and Professor Sunetra Gupta at Oxford University. The three of us were writing from sort of different points of view, but we, when we met together, uh, we realized that we sort of arrived at the same policy idea. The, the declaration itself has been met with, I think, enormous success. At this point, we have over 10,000 physicians and scientists who have signed on to the declaration and over uh, 600,000 regular folks uh, who, who uh, have read the declaration and, and, uh, and, and agreed with, this, with, with the ideas that I've just described. Have you seen any discernible changes in government policy since you published this declaration, if not in the, the U.S. elsewhere? Well, it's created enormous debate, I think, worldwide. I think the government policies, as, as, you, as you said in, in, in the South African context, uh, it, it have, have started to change. It's at, at this point in March, I don't think anyone was talking about the, uh, the heterogeneity and the risk of the populations where, where younger people were facing more harm from lockdowns than from uh, than from, from COVID. So in that sense, the debate has actually been engaged for the first time in, uh, from, this, from this declaration. I mean, I, I've viewed with dismay some of some countries readopting lockdowns, but even in places that have readopted lockdowns, so for instance, France or, or Spain, they've kept their schools open. They've, they've worked really hard to, to try to uh, adopt some of the ideas, I think, implicit in the declaration, which is that not everyone faces the same risk from COVID and the lockdowns are really harmful for many, many people. So I think in that sense, it started to change the debate. Uh, I would like to see the debate sort of change very fundamentally in uh, South Africa, the United States, and elsewhere. And I think starting to look at the lockdown harms is the, is the key to that. It's not just economics. We shouldn't frame it that way because that's, that's not, it's, 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 uh, it's not that it's misleading. It's that it's, it's, uh, it's, complete, it's incomplete. The economics has physical and mental consequences, including massive you know, deaths, that I think to, to a large extent outstrip the COVID deaths, we have to look for balance in our public health policy because those deaths matter just as much as COVID deaths. So you've got a very thick skin. You've had, come in for a lot of criticism as well since you've published this great Barrington Declaration. Why have you continued to support this idea? Well, I'm a professor of medicine at Stanford. I've done health policy and infectious disease policy for 20 years. Um, if I don't speak up, who, who will? I mean, I, it's my, uh, this, is the, this is my honest view. And my job it involves expressing this honest view, regardless of what uh, what pe- what people throw at me. 
So I, I, I mean, I'm going to continue to say this because I think that the lives of, of you know, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of, of people around the world are at stake because of this policy. I think the lockdown policy is the single biggest public health mistake I've seen in my uh, my decades of work in this in this field. And I want to I want to correct that. I see there's, there's a whole sort of movement almost criticizing the, the Great Barrington Declaration and sort of poking holes in it and so on, and a whole Wikipedia site devoted to this. How do you respond to some of the criticisms? For example, one of the criticisms is that you make no mention of masks. Well, I mean, I think uh, masks can have a, a, an important role in some settings. And, and uh, so, so, for instance, I mentioned already masks in the context of protecting the vulnerable in care homes. Um and I think uh, if you let the world free, like so, you let's say you let people go to go go uh, uh, to uh, playgrounds, or pl- let people go to school, or let let people open up businesses, people will still social distance and, and wear masks when it's crowded. I'm not against that. I mean, that's just I think when people feel threatened, they will take steps to try to reduce that that threat. I mean, and I, I'm compa- I mean, I believe that that's that's not unreasonable. I mean, we don't say anything about masks and and uh, and other methods because that's not the key idea that, that we're not against it it's that the key idea is not locking down let people decide what risk they're willing to take on the basis of good public health information right so i think i'll give you an example if you tell people that we're all at the same risk from covid death what ha- ends up happening then is that older people think they're at less risk than they actually are and they take more risk than they probably should and whereas younger people think that they're higher risk than they are, and they take fewer risks than they, they probably should with respect to COVID, and, and, and ironically, more risk with respect to their normal activities. Um, so that, that is, they cur- curtail the normal activities, which would be good for their physical and mental health. Um, you know, they don't go to the gym or whatever, uh, and, and, and instead stay locked down because of the fear, of the, uh, the excess fear of COVID. Good public health messaging fixes that. Um, you tell people what the risks actually are. You give them good information about what the mitigation strategies do, and people will uh, will adapt to their local situation. So, someone walking around alone in the in, in a park, you know, most likely doesn't need, most likely doesn't need a mask. They're at almost zero risk from COVID. Whereas someone in a dance hall in a crowded situation, I would, I mean, first I'd probably advise, a, a, you know, sort of. If you're if you're vulnerable to not expose yourself to that situation, and wear masks in that situation potentially, or, or or try to socially distance. I mean, if you're in a protest, wear masks. I mean, I think those kinds of things are are you don't have to as long as you give people good information, they'll make the sensible choices on the basis of what they believe. You don't, you shouldn't be mandating it or or saying that, that that you need a lockdown because of it. We're not against those mitigation measures. The issue is good public health messaging. Uh, that, 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 that trust people to make the right choices where they are. That's very important. I think some people can also interpret your line of thought on, on this and think that we don't need masks and hand washing and we can just uh, carry on and just let us all get what we hear is herd immunity. But what is herd immunity and, and, and what's your position on it? Yeah, so herd immunity is very important, right? So that, that is the end point of this epidemic, regardless of what we do. Uh, it will end with herd immunity. Uh, it, it, uh, the, the, what, what does herd immunity mean? I mean, herd immunity means that there's enough people in the population that are immune such that the disease no longer spreads sort of, uh, with at, at very high rates. So if an, an additional person becomes infected, only one other person then becomes infected as a result or, or fewer. So herd immunity is the end point, just like it's the end point of, of almost every other infectious disease we know. Uh, you know, herd immunity 
the Zika virus is controlled by, by herd immunity without a vaccine, for instance. The other four coronaviruses that circulate in the population are controlled with, with, by herd immunity. Yeah, so the, the issue is not, I mean, I think this is something that, that my opponents have mischaracterized, and actually I think sort of unfairly so. Uh, the, the herd immunity will happen even if we lock down. The question is how long will it take and how many deaths will it be in, in the process of getting there? If we lock down, there will be more deaths from non-COVID lockdown-related sources, and there will also be more deaths from COVID because no lockdown is perfect, as we've seen, and the longer you ask people to lock down, the less compliance you'll see with it. In the long run, we'll end up having more COVID and more non-COVID deaths with a lockdown until we reach herd immunity. With a focus protection plan, well, there's probably going to be more COVID cases among younger populations, but resulting in fewer deaths because, as I said, 99.95% of them survive COVID infection. There's fewer lockdown deaths in that population because, you know, they're, they're able to do their normal things. And if focus protection is done right, you also will have fewer deaths in the older population because you've, you've protected them and they're exposed to COVID risk for a shorter period of time as the disease sort of spreads in the younger population. The issue then is uh, one of how do we... Uh, uh, adapt to the situation until herd immunity is reached. It's not a question of a herd immunity strategy. Herd immunity is just a biological fact. It's an endpoint of the disease. The only other alternative would be zero COVID, you know, literally eliminating COVID from the face of the earth, but that's not possible. And to do so would destroy the, our entire world civilization, I think. That's quite a statement. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I think, think about, um, Think about what it would take. We, we've only eliminated, eradicated a single human disease off the face of the earth, smallpox. There is no other disease we eradicated. We're, we may get a good vaccine, but even diseases that have good vaccines don't have, aren't eradicated because it would take so, we basically have to stop other all normal human activity to prevent the spread of it. Um, even, even these lockdowns, we exempt people who produce food, who distribute food, who, who, who deliver packages, who, who you know, who, uh, essential businesses. We have to have some of those activities just for any, just even minimal normal human, uh, human functioning for society to function, right? And disease spreads as a result of it. That is just inherent in human activity. In human activity will automatically cause some disease spread. We look at that and we, we balance that against the benefits of those activities, not just money, but the functioning of human civilization altogether. We live with hundreds of infectious diseases. This is one additional one that we should think carefully and, and manage carefully, but we should keep in perspective relative to all the other uh, normal activities that we, we value so much. Do we really want to make it so that we never see our our, our, uh, our, you know, our, our grandkids never get to hug their grandparents? Do we really want to be in a situation where we never have any arts do we want to be in this, uh, or or religious practice, relig- you know, in, in person religious worship? Do we really want to be in a situation where we ask everyone to have uh, uh, to to only only do schooling, uh, you know, teach first graders to read by Zoom? I just don't think that that's. Uh, I mean, I, I would characterize that as a destruction of civilization. We'd have to do that for a very long time to get zero COVID. I think that the idea of trying to get zero COVID and failing, which is essentially, I think, the policy we've 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 uh, pursued, is completely disastrous because we won't get zero COVID and we will crush civilization as a consequence. You speak about in your declaration, you say that part of the focus protection plan should be kept in place until a vaccine is available. Now, there's a lot of talk now that Pfizer's vaccine is going to be out before the end of the year and there are quite a few vaccines in production. 
What is your view on this Pfizer vaccine coming out and how does this uh, impact on your idea of focused protection? I mean, I think that's great news. I have to look at the data because they still haven't, I don't think, released yet a scientific paper that I've seen on this. But I, if if the news reports are right, that sounds like fantastic news. Uh, just, uh, you know, sort of things that something we've been hoping for since the beginning of the epidemic. I think uh, it will be difficult to get enough doses to, to, to get to provide the vaccine to everyone in the world. Uh, the question then is, how do you prioritize who gets the vaccine? And this is where the focus protection idea, I think, is really powerful. We use the vaccine to protect the vulnerable because those those are the people who are most at risk from the disease. And we let people, let everyone else resume their normal lives in the the meantime while we get enough doses to protect other people. I think the the priority for the vaccine should be on the most vulnerable. Again, so the answer to your question is that I think it actually augments and helps the focus protection, makes the focus protection idea even more important as an adoption, as an alternative to lockdown. One thing I've seen people argue is, oh, now that we have this vaccine, why don't we wait for six months or 12 months until there's enough doses to to, to, uh, give the vaccine to the entire world? Really, 12 months of lockdown will will lead to hundreds of millions of of avoidable deaths, uh, again, from starvation and other causes worldwide, tuberculosis, uh, that uh, it's, it's, it's just a very unwise policy. The focus protection idea is even more important in the context of the vaccine. One thing I wanted to ask, and I wasn't sure if this is an area that, that, that you're in a position to talk about, but in South Africa, um, we have a situation where we have one of the highest case rates in the world, according to the Johns Hopkins Medical Center. We're, I think, number 13 on the list now, but a relatively low death rate. And obviously, it hasn't been possible for, for people living in underprivileged areas to self-isolate and adhere to the strict lockdown. So it's been a bit of a farce. But so, so, so we've had this very low death rate. And there's, there's been some speculation about why. Is it connected to the, the BCG vaccine that most of us have had as children? Or is it connected to fortified foods with vitamin B stroke NAD and zinc? What is it? Do you have any thoughts on why South Africa might have a much lower death rate? I mean, it's true for a lot of Africa, right? That the, the, the death rate is much lower than uh, than it is much of the rest of the world. And actually, I think it's also true for much of uh, much of Asia, although India is a little bit of an exception. I, I, th- I think the uh, I think that it could be any of those things. Actually, the B- I was looking at uh, there was a, a small trial among healthcare workers with boost BCG boosters, and the, the the healthcare workers randomized to have a BCG booster actually had lower death rates, much lower death rates and infection rates than the people who were randomized to not have a BCG booster. These are healthcare workers, so they're exposed to COVID. So, I mean, I think that uh, the, the science on that uh, is still evolving, and but I, I, I do think that some degree of pre-existing immunity will be a very important part of that explanation. Although I don't know exactly what that'll end up. It could be the vaccine, the BCG vaccine. It could be a, a pre-existing exposure to other coronaviruses that that are cross-reactive and provide some pr- protection. Um, there's that literature is still evolving, and it's absolutely fascinating. I think one thing I've learned from that literature, even to date, is that lockdowns can't be the story, right? So if South Africa has had a very, very strict lockdown, yet you've had a very low death rate, Peru and Argentina have had basically continuous lockdowns, probably the most stringent in the world, and yet their cases are rising and their deaths are rising among the highest death rates in the world in Peru. So it almost seems like policy invariance, not not entirely, but in some sense, policy invariance. You can do the lockdown and the cases are going to rise or not rise on the basis of, of how, how effective the lockdown. The lockdown pushes the cases out in the future, um, as we've seen in, in Peru and Argentina, I think, um, but uh, but doesn't prevent them from coming back altogether. And the death rates that come out, come out of them 
well, we don't fully understand. I think, but I think one thing you can say is that you know the the the, the population uh, that gets exposed matters, right? So in South Africa, I think it's there's been I think that that there are population features. I think that younger people are more like have more likely to be infected. I think rather than having rather than reporting just number of cases, what should be reported is uh, cases by population. So how many older people are infected? That's really the key statistic to me. That's who's really at risk. So we, sh- we should be reporting that as opposed to just total number of cases, which are much less relevant as far as deaths are concerned. That's very interesting. Somebody actually produced a paper in South Africa today saying that the, the narrative is all wrong. We, you know, we're focusing on this number of cases, but actually this doesn't mean people are sick, basically. Yeah, uh, we've seen this from the seroprevalence data. So uh, this is something I worked on early in the epidemic is that is measuring the number of people in, who are actually infected in the population as opposed to cases. The case happens when someone shows up at a medical center or something and they, they're diagnosed as having the disease, right? Um, mm. it, but it turns out that many, many, many times more people are infected than have the cases. For the, I'd say probably half the people that are infected, there's very few symptoms at all, if any. Maybe a third to a half have almost no symptoms, according to the seroprevalence. So, so the way you check for that is you do a, a population survey of antibodies in the population. And uh, it turns out many, many more times more people have antibodies that are specific to SARS-CoV-2 than, than, than the, the number of cases in many, many places, right? So uh, just to give you a sense, in, in the early days of the epidemic in the U.S., in California, we found 40 to 50 times more cases in the population than, I'm sorry, infections than cases in the population. They many, many times more people. Uh, in in India, that's that's turned out to be even a larger multiplier. You know, I think, uh, and, I, and it would not surprise me if that were true in South Africa. In fact, I'm, I think I've seen a study suggesting that in South Africa as well. Uh, th- this disease has a very wide range of outcomes, and we focus our attention on the w- very worst of those outcomes, not unreasonably. Again, we want to protect the vulnerable. But at the same time, you have to understand when you get infected and you're under 70, the death rate is 90, is zero. 0.05%. Survival rate is 99.95%. That is a low death rate. So for instance, in the United States, that, that involves, if you drive 30 to 40,000 miles a year on a, on a, on a, with a car, you face a, a you have a, a 0.05% death rate. It's in line with other risks that we take in conducting our normal daily lives. No, no life, it's not possible to be 100% uh, free of death. We just not, that's not, it's not, it's not, that's not like in the technical feasible space. The only question is how do you manage risk appropriately? And the risk of the lockdowns for the young is, are much higher, I think, than from COVID itself. And has our government contacted you yet or anybody in South Africa asking you to sort of present your case to our Not government? the government, but there's a no. lot of interest in South Africa and uh, sort of political movements against the lockdowns that that uh, um, uh, that, that that are I think taking shape, but it's not just in South Africa. I think it's worldwide. The people harmed by the lockdowns, are, I think, finally starting to find their voice. Just before we go, you you made a point about people being suicidal, young people. That's really worrying. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's one probably well, other than the 130 million starving starving people worldwide, the, the most shocking figure I've seen in the epidemic in June of this year. In the United States, one in four young adults, 18 to 24, seriously considered suicide. That suicidality rate is through the roof. Normally, that's on the order of 4% of that population. People are hurting, devastated by their inability to do normal things. Young people. um, We've stolen, I think, the, uh, the human right of our children to have a real education. 
um, the, the learning loss is devastating. It will have long-term health effects because less well-educated people um, live less health, less healthy lives. We're going to see the harms from these lockdowns for a generation, and, and, and young people in particular who I think have been harmed by them the most. Dr. Bhattacharya, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for the opportunity to talk. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. Coming up, Biz News hears from Professor Shabir Mahdi, a highly respected vaccinology expert at the University of the Witwatersrand. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. This is Linda von Tolberg for Biz News. The news that Pfizer and its German partner BioNTech is the first to produce a COVID-19 vaccine that is 90% effective has buoyed markets. With shares rocketing and for the first time, we can imagine an end to the pandemic. Hope that the world could finally emerge from behind the masks and rid itself of the disruptive lockdowns in a world without physical contact, sports, restaurants and theatre is sky high. It has been described by Pfizer boss Albert Berla as the most significant medical advance in a hundred years. But will this end the coronavirus pandemic? And the question is, when can this vaccine be rolled out worldwide? Scientists in the U.S. are talking about a jab available by Christmas. And family doctors in the United Kingdom are also getting ready to dole it out in December, starting with healthcare workers and the elderly. Scientists would, however, have a monumental challenge to produce enough doses for the rest of the world. So when will we get it in South Africa? Business spoke to Professor of Vaccinology at the Witwatersrand University, Professor Shabir Mahdi, who is running the clinical trials for the Oxford and Novavax vaccines in South Africa, who said he believed that the likelihood that the Pfizer vaccine could be supplied soon to low- and middle-income countries is limited. Professor Mahdi said a second wave of COVID-19 could hit South Africa in the autumn, but he predicted it would not follow the same pattern as the recent outbreaks in Europe. Yeah, so this is really a remarkable achievement over a very short period of time. And a few weeks ago, if you had asked anyone whether they expect any of the vaccines to be able to reduce the risk of developing COVID-19 by 90%, very few, few people would have thought that's possible. Most people were expecting a vaccine that perhaps provides between 50 to 60% protection against COVID-19. So there's very few vaccines that have ever been developed uh, that provide such a high level of protection as, as high as 90%. So this is a really a remarkable achievement. And what makes it all the more remarkable is that this is the first vaccine ever to be designed using this technology, which is known as a nucleotide-based vaccine. No other vaccine has previously been developed using this particular technology, so it's a novel technology. But the beauty of this technology is that, as we see with this particular construct, uh, is that you can get from the laboratory and get a proof of concept that a vaccine actually works in humans in less than one year. So usually it takes about 10 and a half years from the time a vaccine comes out of the laboratory to the time when a vaccine eventually is shown to be safe and to protect people against COVID-19. And that 10 and a half year average span has been condensed into literally 10 and a half months. So on multiple levels, this is unprecedented. And it's great hope that it's a root out of the pandemic of COVID-19. Uh, but that being said, 
Unfortunately, for many countries, there are some caveats in terms of the feasibility of the vaccine being deployed. What does it mean for South Africa? I've listened to what happens in the UK, that they say they might have it by Christmas. I saw Dr. Fauci said the same in the US. Would it be available for countries like South Africa? Yeah, so there's two issues. The one issue is availability, and the other issue is the operational and logistic component, being able to deploy such a vaccine. So in terms of availability, unfortunately, it's unlikely uh, to be available to many countries other than the European countries and the United States, especially for the next six months or so. And the reason for that is many of those countries have already done an advanced market commitment to purchasing the vaccine. So the United States, as an example, has already pre-ordered 100 million doses of vaccine at the cost of $1.9 billion from this particular, from Pfizer itself. And they've done the same for a number of other companies. In addition to which the European Union has also done a pre-order in terms of uh, being able to access the vaccine. So Pfizer has indicated that at best by the end of this year, they will only be able to manufacture 50 million doses of vaccine. And because every person needs to get at least two doses of vaccine, that means there will be about 25 million people that might be vaccinated. And those 25 million, like I said, are mainly going to be in the United States and in Europe. Uh, for 2021, they project being able to produce up to a billion doses of vaccine, which means about half a billion people being vaccinated, 500 million people. But again, those sort of are the numbers uh, in terms of what's required in the United States and in Europe when it comes to the number of people that need to be vaccinated. So unless there are other vaccine manufacturers that can also show that their vaccines work, uh, the likelihood of being able to gain access to COVID-19 vaccines, especially for low and middle income countries, at this point in time remains fairly limited. Now, that is in terms of supply of the vaccine. The other challenge that we face is that the logistics in terms of deploying the vaccine, unlike vaccines that we usually use in our immunization program, including as an example, influenza vaccine, where you can go to any pharmacy and get the vaccine, uh, those vaccines usually need to be stored at about 2 to 8 degrees Celsius. Uh, this particular vaccine, unfortunately, needs to be stored at ultra-low temperatures, at minus 70 degrees Celsius. And there aren't any facilities in the public or the private sector, other than specialized laboratories, where those sort of cold storage facilities exist. So to be able to deploy this vaccine at scale, where the vaccines need to be stored at minus 70 degrees Celsius, for most low- and middle-income countries, uh, it's not going to be a, a realistic option. Uh, even if we were to invest in that sort of infrastructure, uh, the chances of us being able to even get that sort of equipment is very uh, limited, very restricted. And we're not going to be able to deploy these sort of freezers to all of the pharmacies and to every clinic where people would come forward for vaccination. So operationally, there are huge challenges in terms of this particular vaccine construct with regard to its deployment in low-middle-income countries and even in some high-income countries, even in the United States. In many countries, it means they're going to need to have centralized facilities uh, where people will need to go for vaccination rather than just popping over to your local pharmacy uh, to get the vaccine. And the cost, it seems it's going to be quite expensive. Correct. So just based on what the United States has paid, they paid uh, 1.9 billion doses, 400 million doses of vaccine, which comes out roughly to about $20 per dose. 
which in South African rands is about 350 rand per dose. And you need to give two doses per person. So the cost is going to be a significant factor as well. So how does this all affect the work that you're doing, the trials you're doing on Novavax and the Oxford vaccine? Right, so those two vaccines, we still, uh, in the one of the two trials, we've completed enrollment. In the other one, we're still busy with enrollment. And we're hoping to complete by the end of November. But for both of those studies, what needs to happen, similar to what the study that Pfizer did, is that we need to wait for a certain number of individuals to develop COVID-19 before we can do an analysis as to whether the vaccine protects against COVID-19 or not. Because the manner in which the studies are done is that the volunteers are assigned to one of two groups, either to receive the vaccine or what is known as a placebo. And neither the volunteers nor the investigators know who has been assigned to what. And over time, we follow them up to, to establish who has developed COVID-19. And once we've reached, reached a critical number of cases, we can then do the analysis to see what is the difference in the percentage of people that receive the vaccine and the percentage that receive the placebo, what is the difference of COVID-19 attack rate. So that's how these studies are conducted. So right now, because the first wave of the epidemic has subsided significantly in South Africa, uh, the number of uh, cases that we are accruing, the number of participants that are developing COVID-19 is relatively few at this point. So we can't really tell exactly at what stage we might be able to do that analysis. If I were to be optimistic about it, I would suspect that we probably will start experiencing a significant resurgence of COVID-19 in South Africa in the first quarter of next year. And that's when we'll probably start accruing a greater number of cases of COVID-19 pandemic. Next, we hear from Dr. Nolutandu Nematswerani, Discovery Health's Head of Clinical Policy Unit, about how Discovery is helping its members prepare for vaccine delivery. Uh, there are still uh, some uh, steps that need to be taken uh, to ensure that uh, you know we've got robust clinical data uh, around efficacy and safety of the vaccine. So uh, most experts uh, locally and globally are expecting the vaccine at least by mid-2021. Uh, but we do welcome the positive news coming out of Pfizer where you know they are seeing that their vaccine is offering a 90% efficacy um, at this point. But uh, the clinical data obviously supporting the publications that we've seen uh, has not been peer-reviewed and therefore we still uh, would like to see that data. And obviously also just understand uh, which population groups um, you know, benefited the most from the vac- vaccine. And obviously, when you are planning a rollout um, of a broader rollout of, of a vaccine, you need to understand exactly which uh, patient populations you would be prioritizing. From a South African point of view, obviously, once uh, there is a commercially available vaccine, um, we would, uh, as a country, be in line to, to access this. Uh, our government is participating in a, a, a global initiative uh, COVAX, uh, where you know governments uh, contribute specific amounts of money so that uh, they can be in line to get um, you know uh, some doses uh, for the country, and uh, this is really about equitable access to these vaccines because if such initiatives are not in place, uh, the risk is that the wealthy countries are the ones that are potentially going to buy up everything and uh, then uh, the poorer countries end up with with no access and i think they they there is history uh, that uh, you know can can be referenced in this regard where
for H1N1 um, at some point, um, only wealthy countries um, got the vaccines. And, and I think we're just trying to ensure that we don't see a repeat of that. And I think our South African government is working hard to, to ensure that access will be afforded to those who are eligible. And I think from a discovery point of view then, in line with what I've just said, we are also prepared. Uh, we're preparing, obviously, a budget uh, to ensure that, uh, uh, you know, for members who are eligible, uh, members of the scheme who are eligible, they will then uh, have the necessary cover when the vaccine does uh, land in our shores. Access is that's going to be granted for, to South Africans is going to be driven through the government process. But at a later stage, when, uh, you know, access has been, you know, stabilised, and COVID is is COVID, and it's part of us. Uh, you know, there may be uh, access then that uh, is is granted uh, to private, privately insured uh, members through private entities like, uh, you know, pharma. Then distributing to private uh, retail pharmacies and allowing us to contract uh, with those to to ensure access for private patients. Jackie, we cannot overemphasize the non-pharmacological interventions, which is hand washing, sanitizing, um, mask wearing, uh, and ensuring that people, you know, physically distance, they avoid crowded environments. When they are in crowded environments, they ensure, you know, adequate ventilation, you know, because uh, we just worried that people are dropping their guard now and we're going to see a surge in infections. And I think we are starting to see an uptick in, in provinces like the Eastern Cape. It's also culturally different for us to be walking around with masks, uh, but it's the only way we can get, uh, we, we can prevent uh, the, the, the spread of the infection. And that brings to a close your Inside COVID-19 podcast. Until next time. This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery.